floor now recognizes Senator Dumas. Yes, hello, thank you, and welcome. Uh, thank you. I'll now begin my time here. Just want to state a lot of my colleagues across the aisle, the so-called uh, liberal party or whatever, they talked a lot today about the importance of stopping this supposed global warming, this climate change that they think is so threatening to us. Okay, all right, and let me just say here, they want us to look at the data and the science, but let me ask you everybody here right now, y'all ever seen Science? I mean, really? Has anyone in this room seen science? Because I ain't seen no fucking science, I'll tell you right now. I ain't seen shit for science, but I'll tell you right now. Tell you right now. You know what I have seen? I have seen the fear on my constituents' faces. When people start talking about, oh no! Oh no, the water's gonna rise up and it's gonna sink Florida. It's gonna sink Florida. How dare you? How dare you imply that the people of the great state of Florida would would just roll over and let the tides wash them away? I tell you no. We in Florida will rise up. We will fight off. The rising sea tides. We have the guns, okay? We will. We don't care how high the water thinks it's going to get. We got enough guns to make it reconsider, okay? Because I'll tell you right now, the all y'all want to do is take our guns and shut down all our oil companies. Well, I know that's because y'all deliberately tried to drown Florida. That's right. That's why you want to take our guns. So that when the time comes and global warming, which is an unstoppable natural occurrence, I have been assured by Facebook that that is true. <clears throat> when it comes, because it will come, nothing you can do about it. You may say, oh, the water's going to rise up and Florida's going to fall into the ocean like Atlantis. Okay? Well, let me tell you, if Atlantis had had the amount of guns that we are trying to have in Florida right now, if you would all just sign my free guns for every Floridian bill, which I, not even my own constituents have shown a lot of support for, I might add, Proven once again, I am the most pro-gun candidate in the entire Senate. That's right, I said it. You don't give a fuck. Here we go. All right. Where was I? Oh, right, yeah. We have the guns to hold off the ocean. I don't care what you say. You say, hey, Senator DeMoss, you can't just shoot the ocean. And I say that's because you haven't tried because that's what it really takes to be an American, is state of mind. If you believe you can shoot that ocean into submission, then it can be 
I want you to join hands with me, brothers and sisters of the Republican Party and the few Democrats who secretly know they'd love to be as cool as us. To join hands in giving everyone in Florida guns so that we can shoot the ocean. Can I get a show of hands? I don't care. That's not how the vote works. Can I just get a show of hands? Show hands and this C SPAN will return after these messages. Welcome to the show. Alrighty, hello and welcome uh, to Ruben Uncut. Uh, very special guest today. We have uh, we have Karen uh, Jeffers Tracy, and uh, welcome, welcome. If you'd like to Thank tell you. the audience about yourself. Well, I was friends with your mother way long ago. <laughs> okay, all right. I, I remember you as a newborn, Ruben. <laughs> well, that. That tends to happen to me, I guess. Yeah. Uh, so um, I live near Dayton, Ohio, and okay. I'm a librarian, and I'm a climate educator. All right. Okay. Um, so, yeah. So how long have you been educating people about the climate? About seven years now. Um, before that, I spent a lifetime doing conflict resolution and setting up peer mediation programs and really feeling like I was doing my bit for world peace, you know, each one teach one at a time kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I, and I sort of thought that uh, climate change was something that would be handled by the experts. <laughs> you know, the, mm -hmm. the scientists would talk to the people in power and the people in power would say, this is really serious. Let's do something big about this. And it wasn't until uh, something happened to me um, that with a friend that I, I started to research it myself. Okay. So, so I, 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 I'm a reference librarian right now. All right. But, but I actually cut my hours uh, seven years ago so I could um, live on less money, but work a lot for climate. Wow. Okay. All right. So... So what is it that you do exactly with with climate? Do you so you say you so you're you mentioned research uh, now is this like firsthand or secondhand research? Well, in the beginning, I didn't want climate to be a problem that I had to. I knew that if if I could prove it. So I was challenged by a friend who said that climate was a hoax, that okay. climate change was a hoax and it was just designed to, you know, steal our civil civil liberties. <laughs> so I um. I thought, well, I'm a librarian. I guess I can figure this out if I put my time to it. So I started looking things up and reading articles. And, and at that time, I wasn't aware that, <laughs> that there are authoritative sources. And then there are things that seem like authoritative sources, but they just pay to get in there. So it's called pay for peer review journals. Interesting. So they can still say it's a peer reviewed journal. But they actually just paid to get in. It doesn't go through any of the processes that a real peer review journal does. And librarians, that's a big problem because public librarians aren't trained to really uh, vet these sources. Mm 
and help guide people to authoritative sources. So I'd, I'd say it took me about two years because I would read something terrible and thought, oh no, this is so bad that I have to drop everything and work on this for the rest of my life. And then, and then I would read, you know, something from the denier side that would say, oh, you know, Hanson exaggerated and it's not as bad as this. And look, we have solutions. We're going to draw it down with car, you know, with, we're going to do drawdown. We'll suck it right out of the air. And, and I would go, oh, good. Oh, good. I don't have to worry about this. Phew. <laughs> I can go off and get old like a normal person and enjoy a retirement, you know? <laughs> so, so I do. So I want to ask you about this. Um, so you mentioned that there are paid peer review studies and then there are what's called authoritative uh, peer reviewed studies. Um, so now when I think about uh, peer reviewed studies, I normally think about um, the ones that get published in like the major scientific journals. And yes, and even, well, yes. And My question to you is, one of the things that might make it confusing for people is, so do these types, do these different types of peer-reviewed studies end up in the same publications? No, the whole publication okay. is pay for peer review. And that's where the deniers get published. And there okay. are standard deniers. You know, there are things, I mean, even on our, even on the library shelves, you'll find books. That's another problem. You'll find books by Mark Morano, who is not only a mouthpiece for the fossil fuel industry and a lobbyist who's made tons of money denying climate, but he, but he also knows that what he's doing is a lie and has said so really so he's yes. publicly admitted to the fact that he that he is um falsifying he's, this yeah well he's he's publicly admitting that that humans you know yes yes humans are causing climate change yes climate change is going to destroy is going to actually lead to human extinction and um and yet he's happy making a lot of money off of the denier campaign right now uh, grifting, as the kids say. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, he's so he's written books which are full of all the denier um, arguments, and they're sitting on the shelf right next to other books about climate change, and they don't have a warning on them that says all of these arguments have already been thoroughly addressed and answered by climate scientists over thirty years, and he's just dredging them up again. Is there? Sorry, is there a is there, right. a is there a particular claim that seems to that deniers seem to harp on the most? Well, that leads me to what I'd like to try right now, which is okay. uh, I when I first found out how bad it was, I wondered why more people didn't know and why more people weren't doing something about it. So I started my own project called the Climate Listening Project. Okay. And I, I went around and just grabbed 200 people. And one at a time over two years, I listened to what they thought about climate change. And I would just start, you know, by saying, hey, Ruben, I just, I'm really interested, fascinated in what people think about climate change. Um, and so uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to find out what you think. What I think about climate change. All right. Uh, well, I believe that climate change is a thing that's happening, and I believe it is um, definitely related to the way that humankind is running themselves and the fact that we're deforesting the planet and uh, damaging other ecosystems that result that typically help to process and purify and create our air, like the uh, like reefs and uh, seaweed forests and whatnot. 
Um, as well as, you know, the Amazon and other, and other rainforests. Um, I would say that a thing that I find frustrating is that even when people argue against climate change, I feel like most policies that would help alleviate climate change um, are worth doing anyways. Um, most environmental processes, uh, even if climate change were a hoax, I would support. Um, just based on the fact that the benefit to me is fairly clear and cleaner air, better for everybody, cleaner water, better for everybody, um, less, more, more renewable resources, better for everybody. Mm -hmm. I, in my mind, there is no reason to, I, I have yet to hear any climate, um, resolutions that I don't think would be beneficial on their own. So I, I think that um, by and large, I believe in climate change. And uh, even if it were not real, I would support the various things that are being done to help protect or defend against it. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned that you think, you know, our, our degradation of the natural world is, is helping to, uh, is reducing the things that normally would process carbon out of the atmosphere. Yes. Um, so I guess I would ask, um, uh, one of the biggest denier talking points is that it's just natural cycles. It's just natural cycles. There's really nothing we can do about it or it's not our fault. Um, so I guess, and that's what I find, people don't really understand what, you know, what is the carbon cycle? Mm -hmm. A lot of times when I ask that, people say, oh, yeah, I remember in high school, let's see. And then they describe the water cycle to me. Of course. So that's one thing that's really interesting is, is, is what causes Earth's climate. What are some of the causes of Earth's climate? There are key concepts of climate science that I think people make people vulnerable to the denier memes because they don't understand those key concepts. So, um, so you're saying you do under, you, you do think human activity is causing it, but most of the human activity you're naming are things like degrading the natural system well i mean that's that's only one part of it i mean mm -hmm. obviously we're throwing uh carbon into the air and even the ground and the the water and mm -hmm. pretty much anywhere we can dump it um and ha most of the time not in a necessarily responsible manner and by that i mean just letting it come off of our vehicles our plants uh whatever mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, no, I do think that it is also a serious problem that we are eliminating the, what would normally be the natural resources that would help, um, well, turn it into oxygen. Right. It's, it's like a double, uh, yeah. a, yeah, a very, exactly. what they call a very wicked problem. Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, so that's, that's good. So I like to try to just draw people out about what they, you know, how concerned they are. And I usually don't offer a lot of 
climate science information unless they ask for it. I mean, this is like a two hour okay. process. I sit down with yeah. coffee and we talk, you know, and I just listen. Um, do you normally work on an individual level or do you yes. like lecture at, okay. Well, oh no, I, I do lots of speeches and lectures, um, but okay. I mean, for the climate listening, it has to be individual, especially if it is someone who's completely steeped in the idea that either they, and, and you know, I live near an Air Force base. So I talk to aerospace engineers who, oh, wow. who, who know that the climate is changing, but they think that any action necessary, they know that they say that the action necessary to that we need to take is incompatible with their ideal of governance. And what would, what would the con, what is the conflict that they're talking about there? What is it they, they object to in terms of the governance and what the governance would have to do? Well, climate change in order to be, in order for us to have an effective response to climate change, it takes a rapid and large scale mobilization. It's going to take a rapid transition away from fossil fuels as an energy source, for one thing. It's going to take a change in our lifestyles. Uh, those of us in the developed nations are definitely going to change our lifestyles if we would voluntarily bring them down ourselves it would be kind of a wonderful process. We could actually have a better life with, you know, more meaning in it. But, um, but I, but uh, so they, they object to this idea that it's going to create a one world government. You know, I mean, we have to collaborate with the world in order to do this properly. And they don't like the idea of quote, subjugating the United States under other, under the United Nations uh, decrees or, or agreements with other countries. I mean, so it's very, it's very political in their minds. No, of course. I, uh, I, I wonder about people's priorities who are worried about the United Nations because they all historical precedents show the United Nations, uh, uh, struggles to elect any real change and is frequently, uh, checked out, but is frequently checked by the, uh, IMF and world banks, more, uh, more, uh, laissez-faire commitments. Uh, like, uh, it's not really the climate change, but there was that, uh, that program that some country came up with for Africa where they were going to give impoverished farmers their, uh, their own chicken eggs and the world, it was either world bank or IMF was like, nope, can't do that. That's, uh, that's too much interference. They got to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Yes. You got to end this chicken egg program. And, and that's and like so when the World Bank is out there doing stuff like that, it's hard for me to believe that like countries like the United Nations or even the International Crimes Court, uh, who claim to have all this power, are essentially have none. Uh, like uh, if, if they did, uh, Ronald Reagan would have probably gone to prison uh, for that for all the malarkey he pulled with uh, that illegal. Which country was it? He was illegally blockading with water mines. I can't remember. But uh, the point is, is that there's no evidence that these uh, organizations have any real power over other countries. But do you remember in um, Don't Look Up? Yes. Something really telling for me mm -hmm. was when the president, Merle Streep, said, well, we if 
if we, anyway, we can't do something right now because we have to win the midterm elections. And if we don't win those, we won't be able to get anything done. And it's actually, that's even a mild, a mild description of what really happens. What really happens is the fossil fuel companies um, run dark money campaigns against people who take any action against fossil fuels. Um, any, even, ta- even whispering about removing any of their subsidies even talking about boosting renewables. Um, They will get a dark money campaign run against them. They will get a disinformation campaign run against them or worse, if they live in South America, they'll get assassinated. So um, these, they, how can we have a government that's going to take the large and rapid scale, rapid and large scale action necessary if they know that they're gonna be out of office probably before the end of their term even if they take if they try to take the action necessary and even if, and then they won't be able to do anything just like the president in the movie said. Mm-hmm. So that's a big part of this knot. Mm-hmm. And that's why I really like, uh, like, um, CELDF, um, which is what, in Cleveland. Is you. Um, it's, um, community environmental legal defense fund. Okay. And they have some marvelous teaching videos on YouTube that really help to show the problems with uh, really the whole, the whole decision that was made back in the 70s for the environmental movement, that we can legislate and regulate our way to a cleaner world, mm-hmm. instead of addressing the root of the problem, which was a short-lived species like humans should not be able to own pieces of this long-lived earth that we all are born into and share. And when, and not only own it, but private property rights are just paramount in the United States so that an owner can destroy their property. And that destruction lasts far beyond that owner's lifetime. Now, where are you on... um... So, so as someone who interacts with a lot of uh, socialist types, um, there's a we believe in a clear distinction uh, between what we refer to as personal property and private property. Um, personal property, of course, would be um, your house, your the land you live on, the things you own inside your house. Um, but private property actually refers to things that are owned by um, essentially trusts or corporations or um, companies, things that uh, have the same appearance as public property, but are in fact owned by these types of individuals, uh, like the means of production and whatnot. Um, I was just I wondering if you had... I don't know enough about that to have okay. an opinion. Um, okay, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, uh, I just, I just think that um, there have been good arguments made, like uh, Peter Joseph, and uh, who, who is a strong advocate of more shared commons. Even things like, why should every single house have to have a lawnmower and a washer and dryer and all these things that we could share some of those things? You know, our garage well, I mean, is filled I mean, there up with are, I mean, there there technically. I mean, there are technically options for uh, for washing machines. Um, like there are there are uh, public washing machine things, or some apartment buildings have their own washing machine area. 
Um, so I would say that's well, probably so true. Let's of that. go back to how how urgent do you think the climate problem is? Well, everything I hear is pretty bad. Uh, it sounds like it's fairly urgent. Um, it sounds, uh, from what I from what I understand, and like these things, I guess, are kind of hard to totally predict. But it sounds like we are rapidly approaching the point of no return, where there's going to be some type of climate fallout. True. Um, yes. Okay. All out for the, and, and of course, for all of us, that's, that's something yeah. that people aren't really realizing. Um, Although well, it will, it, I would say it will probably affect um, poor, mm -hmm. smaller countries dramatically more than the larger, richer countries. True, but you know, 350 people died in a Chicago heat wave just a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And that was a, you know, a huge number for a rich country. I mean... That's not enough people to make America care. Let's be, <laughs> let's be honest. We just lived through a thing where half a million people died and uh, half the country is still like, what's your point? I know. That's the biggest challenge is how to make them care. So I lead uh, workshops called En-ROADS Climate Solution Simulator. Um, it's developed by NIT, MIT and Sloan and Climate Interactive. Um, it's really fun, and because we also, it's, there's a presentation, but there's also a game, like a, okay, yeah, like a simulation game where you take on roles of the stakeholder groups, as if you're okay. in an emergency United Nations meeting, and um, so I've done this for um, many, many groups, um, including I'm involved in ISAGA, which is the International Simulation and Gaming Association, and it's, um, what it does is it kind of shows people that everything that's necessary to, to reduce the harm from climate change is within human ability to do. It, it's not easy, but it's worth doing. And it's not, it's not easy because of the social and political aspect, not because of the science and technical aspect. So we actually have those technologies. We actually have what it takes if we would put the will into it to do it. And, and that's what I, you know, I know you love movies and superhero movies and think about all the movies and all the books, all the young adult books, especially there. If you read the, just go to the library and read the back of all the books. Almost everyone is about, oh, so-and-so wakes up and realizes the fate of the world depends on their actions. You know, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, the, or better the fate of the universe, you know? <laughs> and so it's because we we have this urge to to be a hero to people okay. want to do heroic things and live up to a great something that's greater than themselves and isn't it just possible that this is it this is this is everyone's chance to be that hero because it's going to take sacrifice it's going to take really well that's where you lost people the sacrifice part <laughs> that's that's the part where you lost people right there America has gotten too used to the lack of sacrifice. <laughs> like uh, everyone wants to be like, everyone wants to point at like how the economy got so great after World War II, but no one wants to go like, yeah, but that's because the economy sucked ass during World War II. People sold their gold to the government. People were working in factories who previously didn't work. It was, taxes went up a bajillion dollars. 
No, but no one wants to talk about how much sacrifice went into those things before the levels of success that they had. Mm -hmm. Right, but people do kind of fondly admire the people who the, the the idea that people stepped up in world war ii and planted victory gardens and accepted rationing and helped each other are people aware of that part though like how many people do you think you talk to today like when you say well the greatest generation and how many of them do you think are like like actually are like well what like get what made them great like mm -hmm. Like, I, I don't I don't really feel like I see it in people, you know, because I feel right. I don't know, like maybe I'm cynical because of how this how like this last couple of years have gone uh -huh. um, where like literally the message was, hey, we could all come together and save the country. And like half the country was like, but I can't cut my own hair. And it's like, you know, in the Great Depression, no one did that. I mean, that's not true. There were people who objected to the things that happened in the Great Depression, but they were such a small number of people compared to today that they didn't have a major cultural impact the way that they do now. Uh, I think today they, they, they might still be a minority, but they're louder. They have a louder platform. You know, they, they, they have ways to send it through social media and reach more people with their complaints. I mean, that is, that is sort of the thing. If it's social media acts as an amplifier to our... Uh, to our complaints yeah well you're right and that and and here's where i think the whole peace and justice and climate movement have really not stepped up to this and that is how do we provide people with a vision of a future that they can live into um a vision of what it could be like and i have i i'm i'm kind of angry that I haven't seen any movies that help to visualize that for people because it's so important. We, we get a lot of our um, cultural mythology through movies. Mm -hmm. And can you be more, can you be more specific? W yes. What is it you want? So, so if I tell you, look, we have to stop using fossil fuels. Okay. Your, your thought is going to be, how do I, how am I going to keep baby cool enough? And how am I going to keep grandma warm enough? You don't, you don't immediately think, oh, I'm going to be okay and there's going to be enough food and, you know, maybe some of the stuff I give up, I won't care about anyway. Okay. So, All right. but because, because nobody, even a sitcom has never been set in a world that works for everybody. I mean, there's still human drama they could have. Well, I mean, been set. I mean, comedy is more about comedy is meant to reflect more of like uh human foibles and failings um but it's powerful it's powerful look at that i i really think that um oh what's it called family ties you know um oh the show it? with uh yeah, that michael j fox was in that's it yeah so he was he was cute and charismatic and stuff but he was a you know, a conservative Republican capitalist corporatist. Mm -hmm. And the joke was always how kind of bumbling his parents were, or, you know, once in a while he would have his quote come up and learn a lesson, but it, it was. I'll be it, honest. I've, I've not actually seen the show. I just well, know, I, I just know it, what it is because it was Michael J. Fox was on it at one point. Yeah. Well, I think it had a, had a big impact because it made being a, a button-down conservative corporatist kind of cool 
and uh, you know, yeah. So, so that's the danger. You, I think you mentioned it. That's the danger with satire or parody, or I can't remember the difference now. So it would be sat. Well, I mean, satire is meant to yeah. ridicule, so it w- it would be the well, danger of satire because satire. The problem with satire is that satire looks like the thing it's meant to be commentating on or making fun mm-hmm. of. Yeah. And because and of that, it is it frequently leads to a problematic dichotomy where people right. see it and misunderstand exactly. uh, the lesson. They misunderstand yes. the thing that is being ridiculed. Because right. uh, if you can't get that subtext, then frequently a satire will look like a glorification of the thing it's actually attacking, which is a uh, which is a problem. Yes, even even if it really severely makes fun of it, it still ends up glorifying it in some way and people glom onto that, you know. Mm-hmm. So yes, anyway, I think that I think that uh the the big the screen, the mo- screens, movies, all the the way that they can create a story that you live into for a while, that's really important and no one's done it. Um so just to be so what I'm asking what I'm asking though is to know exactly what you think that should be being portrayed because there there are a number of movies that are have an environmental message like um the emerald forest um uh avatar um yeah mostly the messages mostly well, those the messages, messages are more about like the rainforest stop fucking with the rainforest um or even fern gully um, there was a big push in like the late eighties, early nineties to save mm-hmm. the rainforest. Um, so yeah. there are a number of movies about that. Well, yeah, that's ta- that's like movies that are supposed to like raise our consciousness, right? Make us aware of something we supposedly weren't aware of before. Yeah, I'm talking about a world that people can see themselves in. Okay. So, for instance, what if you set a series? Okay. Um, even like friends or something, you know, something dumb okay. like that. What if you set the series in a future world that had solved the climate crisis? Okay. What would their lives be like? It would not be what we see today because we can't continue what we're doing today and solve the climate crisis. Have so, you ever seen, uh, uh, have you ever seen Futurama? Yes. So there's an episode where they, they clarify that the reason there's no global warming in the future is because it was canceled out by nuclear winter uh, at one point in history. They're not uh, the only ones that think that would work. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, so, okay, so that's a good question, though. So you're saying you, you would like some type of media that takes place in a future... Um, I guess the only one I can think of would be like Star Trek. Uh, which is set in, although to be fair though, people often um, neglect to observe all the things that Star Trek implies about the Earth, uh, which is that it's a future where the Earth has come together completely and everyone works towards the benefit of Earth and there's zero uh, scarcity because they've invented technology that makes scarcity unnecessary. And there's a Uh, one-world government. It is a one-world government. In fact, you're not allowed to join the Federation unless your planet has a one-world government. Did you know that? (laughs) Uh, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, that is a thing that I think a lot of people don't seem to get is that once we have interplanetary travel, Mm -hmm. all planets will have to have some type of unified, this is this planet's government. Right. Because that's the only going to be the only way to regulate interaction with other planets. Right. 
and, uh, and they're not allowed to join the federation until they earn that until they create peace on their planet enough that they can cooperate uh among all this all the different you know uh, parts of their planet no absolutely so um uh so I guess I'd like to see something that isn't quite so far in the future that that, that it seems mm, too far. Um, I'd hey, like it's to only see... like three centuries from now. No, I'm <laughs> well, there there is a little clip on uh, on YouTube that was <laughs> that's pretty cool. It shows it's uh oh I can't remember the title what it what was how you find it. Um, it's it's a sequel to the age of stupid so if you put the sequel to the age of stupid okay. you'll find this little short clip i think it's six minutes or something and it shows the message that's sent out at the end of the world it's sent out saying look what we did why didn't we stop it while well, we had a chance but that message goes to earth two they call it earthly the planet earthly so which is kind of like us only people have different names it's hilarious like uh Richard Attenborough is crawling under a bush and they call him Hedgy the Hedgehog um so <laughs> but you can see what would it look like if humans responded appropriately to this warning if they said this is this is a huge thing we don't want to happen to us what happened to earth number one we want to we want to respond appropriately and it just, I'm getting, I'm getting goosebumps right now, just talking about it because okay. it's, it's so beautiful to see the actions we know are necessary finally being done. Yeah. Okay. I'm, Even I'm, though it's a, it's a satire and it's a spoof and it's, or, I'll never get those words right for you. I know you did. I got to go listen to your Well, path, a spoof doesn't. So think about it this way. A spoof does not have an inherent message. There is no inherent message to a spoof. A spoof well, <laughs> can be just silly. Um, well, but a satire has to have a point. Well, this is um, this is what I'd like to see happen. Also, okay. um, Peter Joseph did a film called Interreflections, which is, as all of his things, sort of Indian avant-garde. Um, has three storylines all moving at different paces through this through there but one of his storylines are interviews with people in the future saying how we did it like how did you know oh in, you know in 2022 humanity almost didn't make the right choices we almost didn't make it what happened so that they did make it you know oh is he is he's the guy who made uh he's the, the, the zeitgeist the zeitgeist movies okay yeah, but he's his latest is into reflections and it's really long. Interesting. And it has these three storylines that sort of confuse you throughout. But um, I, I like I liked it a lot. It gave me a lot to you know. I didn't watch it in one sitting because it was well. So I I hope inner reflections are be is better than his other movies. Well, I mean, as all as all of it, it's. I will I say, think... Zeitgeist Addendum is better than Zeitgeist, uh, which was a movie I took a lot of issue with um mainly because like one of the first things in that movie can be debunked with wikipedia hmm. well I, specifically I his messages on religion are incredibly cherry-picked and don't line up with what those religions actually teach uh which i found was interesting addendum though has a pretty accurate representation of banking though so i'll give him i'll give him that right right um, well, this one, 
the storyline that was really interesting, I thought, was the interviews with people with the future. So you kind of get a, a, a different an, a different overview of our time. This one analysis. is the this is the interflections. Interreflections. Uh -huh. Interreflection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, I, mean, I see. Yeah, it looks. But since then, he's he's offered each storyline separately. So if you just want to watch one of the storylines, you can do that. So that's an interesting way to present it. Okay. <laughs> Cool. He's a creative guy. So uh, what I was going to say is um, I just something that I don't think people are, are very um, aware of is um, about about 30 percent, about a third of us are kinesthetic learners. OK, and we are Could you define kinesthetic learning for people who are listening. Yeah, people who are hands-on, um, people who aren't going to go to a TED Talk, who aren't going to pick up a scientific journal and read it, who they're people who like to learn by doing. And a lot of those people are our leaders, head, mayors, council people, even, even you know, actors. Um, okay. They're people who, who like to jump in feet first and do something in order to learn. So I created the Great Ohio Climate Science Roadshow, which is an interactive hands-on learning experience where there are 10 stations and you walk in and each one uh, you get to do hands-on learning to learn another key concept of climate science. So um, one of the stations is like a lot of people are confused about why carbon's a problem at all. I'll say even I was at the beginning, like carbon is, a, you know, we're a carbon based system here, you know, all much of anything's a bad thing. Carbon. Well, but it's a cycle. It's part of Earth's natural cycle, right? So why kidding, is it a yeah. problem? Why is it a problem? You know, um, and I think what a lot of people didn't understand is that a big chunk of that carbon was taken out of circulation. It was taken out of the system and sequestered far below the ground before humans ever were on the planet. And so that is the carbon that we're adding back into this energy system. Are, of our are we planet. talking about oil right now? Mm -hmm. Well, yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. So ancient carbon. Uh huh. Okay. Is that, is that essentially what oil is? Is this... Mm -hmm. It's the bodies and plants and of uh, ancient creatures. And, but it was, it was made under certain conditions, um, compressed at the bottom of uh, oceans. And, but it's, um, it was out of, out of our carbon cycle. So it's part of Earth's carbon cycle. There's only one carbon cycle, which is the whole planet and the whole lifetime of the planet. And, but, but with that carbon taken out of the picture, then the conditions of the planet could change to something that is more amenable to human life. So humans arose under those conditions and our civilization rose under specific conditions. So if you think of parts per million of carbon in the atmosphere, this is the chemical composition of our atmosphere, parts per million, which is parts of carbon you take a certain chunk of air and you measure how much, you know, ratio the parts per million of carbon is to the other ingredients. So as long as humans have ever been on the planet, it was 280 parts per million or less. 
So wow. people who say, oh, it's been higher than this before. Well, that was before there were ever humans here. That was long before there were ever humans here. Okay, that was before that extra carbon was taken out of the system. So it was 280 parts per million or less. So when you were born, Ruben, okay. it was up to 300, wait a minute, you, 85. No, your mom, wait a minute. So when your mom, let me see, when your mom was born, it was 310. Okay. Okay. Now 280, remember, were as long as humans have been on the planet. So if, if let's say that's the length of your arm. If you touch your shoulder and run your hand down your arm, okay, this is kinesthetic learning. Okay. <laughs> touch your, so run your hand down your arm. So the whole time, that's your whole arm that humans have been on the planet. And the reason I don't mention numbers is because some people have different ideas of how long humans have been on the planet or what defines a human, et cetera, um, or how old the earth is. I mean, I don't get into all that because you wouldn't believe the kind of things I've heard <laughs> people respond to. <laughs> But let's just say this is all of human history. So the part of human history we're talking about now is since 1750. And that is a tiny little sliver of your fingernail is uh, maybe is when 1750 began. And 1750 is when the parts per million began to go up because that's when we started industrialization and burning carbon. Uh, getting that carbon out of the ground, that sequestered carbon out of the ground. So I'm not talking about, you know, forest fires um, by the ancient people or campfires or pioneers cutting trees. Yes, all of that did have some effect on, all of that did have some effect on the, um, on the atmosphere and the, the ecology, but the parts per million began to go up in 1750 when we began to burn uh, fossil fuel carbon in earnest. So when your mom was born, it was up to three, 310 from 280. When okay. you were born, it was 350. And 350 is what scientists have told us is the highest safe limit. And that was past the year you were born. Okay. When, if you have a child, um, so that would be the same as my granddaughter. The child was probably born when it was about 410. And today it's at 417. Now parts per million is a measure of the life support systems of our planet. It is the chemical composition of our atmosphere on which everything else depends. So as, if you can, as you can see, that's within three generations of human beings. It has shot up. That's pretty remarkable. Yeah. And I don't think that many people realize that because they don't put it in their own physical terms. You know, your own lifetime, your own mother, your own child. And you, you think that maybe that is something that would help uh, reach people to put it in those types so. of terms? <laughs> I hope so, Ruben. I try so many ways to reach people. I try creativity. I try writing songs. <laughs> I tried giving speeches right now. Oh, look at this. I have, a, I, I created a board game. Are you? <laughs> board game. Look at this. <laughs> I created a board, a board game. And then I'm also doing the board game as a life-size human-size board game for Earth Day at our Earth Day fair. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, all righty. Yeah. 
Um, so, like, I will say, like, you're up against some pretty... People who are anti-climate change are pretty determined, uh, I will say. Um, and, I, re and I recently... Rich and rich. <laughs> some of them. Some, of them, some people... I, I, I find... The bigger problem I find is that there are so many people in the world who are... I don't know. Like, I have I've become more and more aware of, like, contrarianism. Like, I feel like it's a big problem because I feel like there are people whose viewpoints are based more on just sort of a reactionary rejection of things that they feel are being, like, pushed on them. And, like... But, like, mm -hmm. this often leads to, like, very ridiculous reasoning. Like, I listened to this, uh, I was listening to a climate change debate recently um, where this guy tried to point to another planet uh, and its temperatures as being an indicator of the fact that these are natural processes. Right. And he even said, why is it so hot on the moon if it's, if it's all about having mm -hmm. an atmosphere? And like the thing about that is, is that like a simple Google search will tell you is that yeah, it's it's hot on the side of the moon that the sun touches, but the other side of the moon is literally the opposite. It's like hundreds of degrees below. Uh, like, so yeah, no, climate is uh, the atmosphere is clearly very important in terms of maintaining the heat on our planet, mm -hmm. uh, which this guy who I think was from Germany didn't believe which is weird uh oh i might know lund lundberg lundborg uh, i honestly don't remember his name uh he was uh he was de debating a, a guy named vosh on some uh on some debate channel that youtube you want to see some good ones um there is a there's a there's a channel on uh, it's Peter Hadfield. He's a science writer, so his okay. job is to understand the science and then translate it for regular people. And he has a a channel called Potholer Fifty Four, <laughs> Potholer P O T H O L E R Fifty Four. Um, he is a, probably a good one for people who are kind of more toward the right right side of the political spectrum because he is a free market economist person who believes that some of the okay who believes some of those solutions will come that way but he's he's so excellent at answering the deniers because he and he's the one actually he he is where i learned how to track down the sources how to actually track it back to the original um studies that oh. are then being quoted on all these blogs or misquoted <laughs> misinterpreted on these blogs <laughs> So, I mean, that is a that is a big thing is that is that um, frequently people don't necessarily know how to interpret data right. or even. Uh, it's super hard. Mm -hmm. um, uh, hold, hold on one second. I need to take this phone call real quick. Sure. I'm just going to pause. The Where were we? I forgot. <laughs> it happens. It happens. It happens. Um. I remember you you were you had mentioned um, this is not necessarily the last thing you said, but I remember you had mentioned learning how to uh, track down the original sources, which I do. I will say that part of the problem is is that um, a lot of legitimate sources are frequently behind paywalls for a lot of people. 
Like that is sort of like the thing is that a lot of the like real data um, you have to like already have some type of academic or like or like corporate connection to to even get those things. Um, which I think is definitely problematic, but I guess that's how like those types of people make their money uh, to pay for those things, I guess. Yeah, um, that's, that can be frustrating when you're doing research, really frustrating. Um, I tried to get into ResearchGate and they wouldn't let me. <laughs> I tried in many ways. I even got a referral, et cetera. <laughs> what, is, uh, what is ResearchGate? it's a database of scientific papers and you can choose your, choose your topic. But, but meanwhile, the, the public library does um, subscribe to uh, okay. scientific journals and uh, they are available in EBSCO. You just have to know what you're looking for. Are there scientific journals that are more reputable than others? Uh, yes, there's a list, in fact, of um, recommended and reputable, but an easy way for people would be to go to skeptical science um, I, I can't remember if it's com or org, skepticalscience.com, maybe. Um, skeptical with a K, S-K-E-P-T-I-C-A-L, science. That's okay. run by John Cook, who is a professor and is, and I actually, um, his textbook that he helped to write is so beautifully written. It's so readable. Uh, it's <laughs> so much so different than what most uh, scientists write, but he developed skepticalscience.com where you can put in uh, you can put in a denier meme in your search bar, and then you can choose whether you want um, a simple answer or a medium answer or a really thorough answer. <laughs> and all the links to the articles um, and the studies are are there, so you can follow them that way. So they're all. Um, uh, you know, reputable sources. Um, and the other one is, I mean, there's a whole list of resources I could add for people, but um, there's Climate Central and um, what's the other one? Where, where journalists and climate scientists got together because climate scientists realized that they weren't very good at communicating. So they thought maybe I can team up with some journalists. <laughs> and the journalist's job then is to translate the science for people. Um, yeah. NASA actually has some good information on there. Um, Earth Null School is a good source I use a lot. Um, let's see. But, um, right, it's not, it's not easy. And I can tell you, as a librarian, I had to do thorough research. It, it, it does wasn't... seem like there is a disconnect, uh, even in the media, oh, uh, yes. from, actu from like, solid uh scientific understanding um right. as an example i would have you ever seen the documentary uh spaceship earth no i haven't seen that one right. uh, it is about the um it is about the the people who made the biodome like the the real one mm -hmm. uh not the poly shore one the one in arizona i don't remember hmm. where it is exactly. Um, okay. It's been a minute since I saw the uh, the documentary, but the documentary brings up a really interesting point about it. Well, one of which is that the news, like heavily reported on, as being like a scientific experiment. But the truth of the matter is, the biodome itself is more of like an engineering experiment. It's more like a can you build it that's that's really what the science comes down to is the data and like what how determining how to make one 
Mm -hmm. uh, which is very different than what is considered the scientific method of how to achieve like a scientific understanding of things. But the problem was is that the media reported it as this big like scientific experiment. Um, so when there started to be problems, which um, the first thing they ran into, the biggest problem they ran into is with that once they started to harvest food, it dramatically cut the amount of oxygen inside the biodome <laughs> because they hadn't they hadn't compensated for like what would happen to those plants once uh -huh. they uh, started to eat them, and it caused a serious loss of oxygen in there. Um, right. So the so because well for safety they had to start pumping oxygen into it. Uh, and the media went crazy with it. They they started being talk about how like this they've betrayed the experiment. They're, it's now they're they're no longer using good science. But it was never really right. what we think of as the scientific experiment, uh, the scientific method. It was really more of like an engineering test. How do you build a biodome? How do you make a sustainable biodome? Because if we're going to go to Mars or the Moon or anything else, we need to be able to make a sustainable biodome. Uh, which is very different than what we normally right. think of as science. But essentially, once they, for safety, started putting oxygen into it, because you need to, it doesn't necessarily mean that the science has failed. If anything, that's the data that they would be collecting. Mm -hmm. um, People but, don't understand how science works. They no, exactly. Really but and once then, that issue happened, the, the media and the public turned exactly. on the, the, entire, the entire project, and all the original members... Uh, were removed from it. Oh my goodness! Um, which is fairly shocking. It's it's, it's a, it, it was on Hulu. I recommend looking it up. It's a very cool documentary. Well, I went um, into something similar with climate because people when I when they say the models the models haven't proved could to be correct or and and when I really ask people what they think climate models are, <laughs> they're actually visualizing like a lump of clay on the table. <laughs> Or they're visualizing something where scientists just make up something like they did for their seventh grade science fair. Like just make up something and then test it, you know, call it a hypothesis and then test it. So they think scientists are sitting around going, hmm, I wonder what would happen if we raise the temperature of earth by seven degrees, what would happen? They don't understand that that, that po depositing that question is based on data that's been taken and collected from multiple locations on our planet and above our planet, from satellite data, from ice core samples, from tree ring data, from temperature markers in the ocean. They, this is a collection of data that they are then, then trying to create the models from. They're not making it up out of their heads. And you wouldn't believe how many people think they just make it up out of their heads and then put it in a computer to see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, no, I think they seem to be confused on what a thought experiment is versus actual science. Right. Yeah. They don't understand how it works. They also don't understand how if you, oh, here's another popular one. They'll say, well, the people who are you know, their scientists, the ones that are paid by the fossil fuel industry, the Heritage Foundation, the Cato Institute, the Koch brothers money, those scientists, they'll say, oh, they've been suppressed they aren't allowed to publish in peer reviewed journals. They, they've been you know, frozen out of the scientific community. But the fact is, if someone can do an experiment based on your data and it works, 
and they can build on it, they can build their experiment on top of your data, then that verifies your data and makes your study stronger. And you get sort of, it's sort of like a point system. The more people who cite your study as something they used and it worked, the more points you get, the more verifiable you are. And these people that they're saying, oh, they've been suppressed. Oh, you know, they, you aren't listening to the contrarian voices. Mm-hmm. Well, it's because their data was, their, their study didn't hold up scientifically. When other people, people tried to use it as a platform, it collapsed. People couldn't get the same results. And they also pointed out where the problems were. So the problems uh, with the data were found and identified, but that part never gets into the media. That part that isn't part of the, you know, the Fox News talking points. <laughs> no, yeah, there, there is, there is, a, there is clearly a disconnect between um, the media and science uh, literacy, uh, yeah. which is definitely a, a problem. But on the same level, like. Like, so you have, you just have like different layers of a lack of literacy. You have, they have, people have a lack of media literacy and then people on top of that have a lack. And then the media has a lack of, uh, scientific literacy. True. And, and the general people have a lack of scientific literacy. So like you're being, you're filtering it through someone who doesn't have a really strong, uh, scientific literacy and they're sending it through the media to people who have neither a strong scientific or or media literacy uh, mm-hmm. standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, like I recently this is and this is stupid, but um, but like uh, the whole thing with Will Smith at the Oscars happened and I got and uh, there was this one person who said it that he thought it was uh, a setup that it was like staged. Yeah. And I was like, do you have any evidence of that? And so he like sends me this video from YouTube and and i watched the video from youtube and like my first and like the thing is is that there's like literally no evidence in the video <laughs> it, it's it's literally just a guy and the video is titled it was something ridiculous like um oscar mk ultra meltdown uh <laughs> and it's like well that's like yeah it's just a guy talking about the elite in Hollywood and all their messaging and how they're trying to push this agenda. And like the thing about it is, is you go through the video, there's like no evidence. There's like, he doesn't put forward a solid evidence. It's all narrative. It's just, it's just, he's constructing a narrative being like, Hey, they're this way. They're this way. They're this way. And what, what else is hilarious is I'm pretty sure in the video, the guy's like, I don't think this was staged because if it was staged, it would have been a white man slapping a black man to push the, to push the narrative. And it's like, what, if, what is this guy even sending me? Also, if, if someone sells T-shirts, they might not be in it to free you from the Illuminati. I'm just going to say that. Uh, if they have a store, uh, they're, they're selling something. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Well, you run into the same thing when you try to research climate change. A lot of times the title of a study will be kind of misleading as to the conclusion of the study. And a lot of the blogosphere will grab the title and run with it. They won't even bother to read the study. They'll just grab the title. Mm -hmm. So, but then when you read the whole thing and really plow through it and parse through it, which is a slog, you, you, you reach the end and say, well, they didn't prove that at all, you know, or they, they, (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, or the, or the conclusion was almost exactly the opposite of the title. It's really confusing sometimes, but yes. um, let's see. But climate change is becoming undeniable. It's becoming visible to everyone. You know, we're having Antarctic ice sheets collapsing things. I also have to say the scientists have not been actually helpful to those of us trying to get their message out. Um, a lot of times they're sort of, it's because they want to be so accurate. They don't want people to make, um, make it easier for people to understand <laughs> because I, of necessity, I have to do that. You know, mm-hmm. like for instance, um, the isotopes, of car- okay, so the carbon molecule itself traps heat. It's really interesting. The carbon molecule has like uh, between the atoms is, is flexible. It, it wobbles. And those loose bonds are what trap heat. So it's a, it's a um, quality of the carbon molecule that was known long before climate change was ever a thing. Scientists back then knew, knew that carbon tracks heat. Um, carbon dioxide traps heat. But um, the scientists, when, when you say, well, we know it's humans because of the isotopes, it's a it's human thumbprint, human fingerprint in the atmosphere is the isotopes. Well, then they say, well, no, it's not exactly. I mean, it's not like a certain isotope. It's more like the ratio of the isotopes. <laughs> so they it's very hard to, to be their spokesman and try to get gr- bigger concepts across because anyway, I do have climate scientists that I check in with. Uh, for instance, for my climate science roadshow, I tried to make sure I was accurate in what I was portraying, even though it was, um, you know, things like, like a juggling skit where okay. you have the juggler juggling the carbon cycle and you're saying, okay, now I'm going to reach over here and dig up some more carbon and throw it into the, into the circulation. And the juggler is going, oh no, what can I do? You know, and the answer is stop adding carbon to the cycle. Stop it. So, <laughs> so um, I'm trying to make sure that the act- activities are still in line with science, although they're accessible. I would say that this is um, this is possibly a, a, a. I'd say that I've seen I've noticed this issue also um, during the pandemic. Um, although it wasn't it wasn't the scientists who I felt like. Although maybe I mean honestly, it probably was also the scientists. But like, I would talk to a lot of people who would who would tell me that they felt uncomfortable about the vaccine because they would like go and talk to their doctor. And their doctor, instead of like explaining it to them, would just be like, just take the shot. And I don't think doctors did anyone any favors by just being like, please just trust me and take it. I don't think any doctors did anyone any favors that way. I think that just led to, I think that just encouraged reactionaryism and concern and they didn't properly address people's concerns. And I, and like, I get it, like, in a way, I like I have to hand it to you. You've you've taken on a very unpopular position, which is that you want to go out and you want to educate people on these specific things. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that a lot of times in life, people find themselves in a situation where they should be educating people, um, but like people get tired, people get exhausted, like. Um, 
like I, I've been a vegetarian my whole life. And like you just at a certain point, you're just like people want to be like uh, when you when you have something like that, people want to people want you to to justify it to them. People want to be like, well, why are you a vegetarian? Uh, and like at a certain point in your life, you just get like tired of it. It's like I'm no, I'm tired of telling people why I'm a vegetarian. I don't I don't want to do this anymore. And it's like it seems and like from just from people I've talked to, it's like the same for like for like uh, for like trans individuals is some and like a, like African Americans get very tired of trying to educate white people on on what it's like to be black, and that and that's fair because it's it's it can be exhausting, mm -hmm. and like we don't all want that responsibility of explaining these things that are either part of us or are something that we strongly believe in, and there's this like we would rather someone else taught you out of your problematic views. And well, I, send I, them I, to me. Send your denier friends to me. I will gladly okay. have a conversation. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to send you, I'm going to send you, uh, I'm gonna Actually, I'm, I in a, I'm in two university studies on climate communication. So I do need some subjects. Okay. I'm going to send you, I will send you the, okay. I, I know this, maybe you know this guy too. Um, but I don't convince people. I listen and I help to get very specific. You know, like if they say, ah, scientists, they're, you know, they're all corrupt. They're all in this corrupt. Then say, what, what percentage of them do you think are corrupt? Oh, 90%, you know, okay, then. And, and how does that work? So you just sort of just keep, you keep getting more and more specific. Yeah, they, a lot of distrust come, is, is very vague. People don't yes. have concrete, uh, people don't know where to aim their confusion and anger. Yes, and, and, they're, and it's very fuzzy in their heads. They just exactly. have a fuzzy idea that this is wrong or that this is how things are. Exactly. And so as, as you listen and you try to do reflection and summarizing and you just try to get more and more specific, then they start to realize, oh, maybe I don't really know what causes Earth's climate <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't understand the orbit of the our orbit around the sun. <laughs> hey, you know, there there are some people who don't believe we orbit the sun. <laughs> do you have Do you have any views on flat Earth theory? <laughs> uh, uh, believe me, guess what? I've actually had to request books for people on that. I was going to say, it does seem like there is some level of crossover between uh, climate denial and uh, and flat earth people. I'm just hoping that there's enough of us, that there's enough of us to make this transition happen quickly and that it can, I. Are you, are you so. Yeah, before we end, I want to, I do want to touch on okay. some hope. Yeah, go right ahead. <laughs> so. It's about 20 of, and I'm going to have to leave in about 10 minutes or so. Okay. Because sure. The library closes. <laughs> oh, yes, of course. And then go ahead. What, what, uh, what is your summation, your final thoughts? <laughs> well, there's kind within the milieu of people who do know about climate and who do take action in multiple ways, there's a whole variety of groups and that will suit your temperament 
So for instance, if you're the type of person who just really likes to wear suits and be very, uh, uh, very um, official and uh, business-like, then you might like Citizens Climate Lobby because they're very polite. They talk to our representatives. They, they, um, the representatives actually make appointments with them because they know they're not going to cause a scene. Um, so that's, that's like for that temperament. Then you have... Um, climate reality, which are people who are passionate and who want to give the climate reality presentation, which was developed by Al Gore. Um, and, and it's wonderful. It, it keeps being updated, you know, like all the time. So I could, if I give it now, I can actually have slides from climate events happened, you know, a few months ago um, in, in the slideshow. So you can get that training. Right. If you have a more, even a more passionate or emotional or uh, dedicated personality, you might go to XR, Ex Extinction Rebellion. Um, so, and, and then there's Sierra Club. They're also stepping up in a okay. great way. That's what I've um, heard of. Yeah. And uh, they, I mean, all of these things have been criticized because they, they criticize each other because they don't think that they're doing it right, but it's actually just, it's your personality. Go to whatever your personality will suit um find your tribe and take action okay and so within this whole group though there's these other people called the deep adaptation people who and this is a huge controversy okay. <laughs> because they they want to say give it you know it's it's hopeless we're all going to go extinct and we might as well just enjoy it while we're while we have time now enjoy the earth and and you know sing songs and hug a tree huh. and have peace which is, which is nice. I wish I could do that, but I have this hero complex <laughs> where I actually think I could have an effect. I don't know why, but I think I can have an effect. So my hope comes from this, that within our lifetime, we will stop the use of fossil fuels. Now that's not going to solve everything, but it's going to lay a platform, a groundwork for people who come ahead of us, who come behind us next the next generation so the, the but what i'm saying is those scientists those children children our children our children's children are going to have scientists who are going to have a lab that isn't flooded they're going to have a civilizational structure that's going to support science and they are going to come up with things that we've never thought of before just as there was once a time when people thought heavier than air flight was impossible, when people thought things like antibiotics were impossible, um, there, there's going to be things that they come up with that we have never dreamed of. But they can't do that unless we do our part. And our part is to stop the use of fossil fuels to, as quick as possible. All right. Very cool. Very cool. But that's where my hope comes from. All right. Well, speak, speaking of the, speaking of um, the idea of finding the right place for you in uh, in in climate communities and whatnot, I will say I had a mild bone to pick with you because you invited me to uh, debunking denialism's page, what? and I I did not care for their attitude. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember that. I don't even know who they are. I don't remember. It's it's there. There's some Facebook group, and maybe I'm confused. Maybe it was someone else, but I thought it was you. They just uh, they just 
mostly what they do is they just put out a lot of um, pro-science, anti-denialism memes. Okay. But what I discovered is that whoever moderates that page uh, is not interested in being a generous uh, educator. They, uh, they came off quite hostily uh, in, in, a conversa in, a, uh, in a conversation where I was just trying to, to point out something about what they were talking about. And they made it a whole thing. And I was like, okay, well, this doesn't make me feel like I want to be here. This is very, very maybe, aggressive. But it, maybe it's like what you were talking about being uh, tired of, I'm a vegetarian too, by the way, but being tired of explaining to people why you're a vegetarian. I think it, it does become really tedious after you've explained the same points over and over to people. It and does. Just, it and does. But I didn't make a group about being vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> and then and then start yelling at people when they have questions. Okay. Well, I will that's help my you. That's my point. Help with any questions. And my my email. It wasn't about it wasn't about climate. It was about uh it was about the addictiveness of cheese. <laughs> I know. I know. Ridiculousness. Ridiculousness. <laughs> uh but uh but yeah, no. Um that's just some silliness I wanted to bring up. Uh, so let's, um, you so where should, where can people go to find you and, and, and your resources? Uh, how do people reach out to you? What, uh, it sounds like you do lectures, like where, where, where yeah, can you can, find you? You can message me on Facebook, Karen Jeffers Tracy. Um, and you can also, um, and you should message me, not just try to friend me because I don't really friend a lot of people unless they message and tell me who they are. <laughs> so, so message me Fair. first. Um, but then also, um, I have, uh, climateohio at gmail.com and you can, especially if you want any presentations or games, I can do, you know, the simulation game for you and a friend or you Excellent. and a group or anybody. Um, and, uh, that's, that's also a lot of, I think you come out of it feeling pretty good. That's, that's an up kind of experience. Um, couldn't do the climate reality presentation. I can help you talk to your mayor and your city council, make a climate emergency declaration. Um, I can guide you to, like I said, those different resources, maybe talk to you about what group you might be comfortable in and, and connect you. Um, so what I would really like to see is this climate consciousness just all over Ohio. Just more people in Ohio getting smart about climate. Mm -hmm. I would, well, you know, well, I, based on the maps I've looked at, I will say Ohio, probably uh, one of the states was the most to gain from, no, <laughs> yeah, sink, Cali yeah, let's sink New York and Florida into the ocean while we have a nice tropical climate all of a sudden. That's what I, I told a scientist once. It just means I can grow tomatoes year-round in Ohio, right? And uh, he, he disabused me of that idea. Yeah, Ohio's going to suffer too, sorry. Well, of course. It's, uh, <laughs> not everything here is necessarily adapted to that type of climate. Although we do have better, um, what's the word? Eco, we do have better eco-diversity in Ohio than, uh, than some states. Yeah. Uh, some states are probably going to be very very problematic uh, as climate <laughs> continues to change and yeah. we'll see if their plant life survives. Yeah, the chaoticness of the weather is what's going to hit us all. And oh, it yeah. can happen anywhere. It can blast down like a blow dryer from the sky. 
Oh, absolutely. Um, Although, I mean, I am I am talking more like um, the climate itself, because some people do mix up the the weather uh, climate dynamic. You always hear like you always see those memes on Facebook from some conservative who's like something about, well, it's they say there's climate change, but it snowed today. <laughs> like it's it's just uh, that's not that's not really how it how it works. It's very dramatic oversimplification but yeah no i i see what you mean yeah no it does it does create weather problems yeah oh, well it does and in fact in the last 30 years uh we've had an average of um a, a weather record has been broken every three years which is wow. very unusual for weather so uh, yeah the, the chaoticness of the climate you know we've we've basically destabilized what could have been a sort of goldilocks climate for us for for thousand ten thousand years more but we screwed it up <laughs> so we've got to we've got to reverse that trend amen <laughs> thank you so much for this opportunity i really it's been really fun to talk to you and if i come on again sometime i'll sing you my song about the about uh inhoff bringing a snowball to the floor of congress <laughs> all right that'd be great yeah well uh thank you for joining us once again oops excuse me once again we are speaking with uh karen jeffers tracy um that is that is how you 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 do your name, right? Just yes. okay. Excellent. If you're interested in the um, climate uh, lectures or uh, any of her resources that she provides, please uh, look her up on uh, on Facebook. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, well, thank you ever so much for joining us today. Thank you, Ruben. It's been great. Absolutely. Been fun to talk to you, and it's been great listening to your podcast too. And you really got me today. I got, I got April fooled. <laughs> oh, you you heard the April Fools one. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad. I wonder. I prefer it if people hear that one today. Well, not today, because this is going to come out on Monday. Uh, but I hope that people heard it the day it came out, because it'll be very. I don't know what they'll make of it if it's their first episode they hear. Uh, well, I can hear. I can hardly wait to hear what uh, humor you're going to put at the beginning of this one. I really like those little clips you do. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate the feedback. I'll, I'm sure I'll think of something. Okay. All Bye -bye. right. Goodbye. C-SPAN now returns to Senator Dumas in his 14th hour of filibuster. And another thing, another thing, you know, you just, you gotta get on the, 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 uh, 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 you know, the, uh, 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 uh. The senator will refrain from adding an excessive number of uhs to his filibuster. I can add whatever words I want, but let me tell you this, and I promise it'll be a coherent sentence. I'm the only person in the Senate brave enough right now, right now to do a line of cocaine and tell you that the entire oil industry is the only thing that will save America. Please nuke the ocean.